Welcome to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Health and News about medical breakthroughs with the power to improve lives everywhere. There wasn't a single health system globally that had it figured out. I think that there were bright spots in many places, many lessons learned, but ultimately, regardless of how the health system was set up, how it's financed, how care is delivered. One of the starkest things was how so many health systems globally had to shift how they were thinking about their resourcing setting, how they were thinking about their, their delivery strategies to focusing on pandemic response, which came at the expense of the core healthcare services that individuals need. That's Kelly McCain, head of health and healthcare initiatives at the World Economic Forum in Geneva, Switzerland, talking about the massive challenge that the COVID-19 pandemic presented for healthcare systems across the globe. In this episode, Tisha Boatman, head of global access to care at Siemens Health and News, is joined by Kelly and Isabel Mestres, the CEO of City Cancer Challenge Foundation, an organization that supports cities around the world as they work to improve access to equitable cancer care. I'm Tisha Boatman. The pandemic brought the issue of healthcare to everyone's doorstep. Those who had otherwise little contact and knowledge of their healthcare system now had a clear view of its strengths and its vulnerabilities. COVID-19 didn't create the challenges in healthcare systems, but it did expose already existing gaps, most apparent in low and middle-income countries who had fewer resources and less capacity to address shifts in disease prevalence. At the same time, the pandemic led many healthcare leaders to think out of the box and embrace new technologies on their way to improvement. Today, you'll hear what's currently being done successfully in healthcare and what can be done globally and regionally to create a more sustainable and resilient system. Developing countries are currently caring about 80% of the global non-communicable disease burden, which is absolutely immense, especially when you're thinking about what this means for the long-term impact on health systems and the long-term care pathways. That's Kelly again. Here, she's explaining the massive burden of non-communicable diseases that the pandemic exposed in the global healthcare system, especially in low- and middle-income countries. Non-communicable diseases, often referred to as NCDs, are also known as chronic diseases and include cancer, cardiovascular disease such as stroke, and chronic respiratory diseases. NCDs are a particularly important way of measuring burden on the healthcare system because of the impact they have on premature deaths. You see this disproportionately in lower income settings than you do in high income settings. And thinking about premature death, what that means for economies, what that means for families, what that means for systems, it's just really incredibly disruptive, especially knowing that when non-communicable diseases are diagnosed, treated and managed early, you have a completely different outcome than if it's something that isn't caught and managed. So in thinking about how lower resource countries are going to 
not only operate sustainably, but be able to grow, become more competitive, enter new global markets, it's really going to depend on having a strong, healthy population. And I think it's going to be really, really important for these countries to start rethinking and reshifting how they deliver and invest in care. Another factor complicating the response to NCDs in the wake of COVID-19 has been the lack of standardized treatment across the globe. Certain countries have done, I think, more work in moving towards standardization in caring for non-communicable disease. But if we're talking about global standards or even continental standards, we haven't seen as much there yet in broad adoption. While there may not be global standards just yet, there are promising initiatives that are currently underway. For Kelly, one prime example of a potentially scalable response is happening right now in Asia. China has done quite a bit of work to standardize the pathway of care for chest pain and thinking about how they have a system now where they know exactly from the first incidence of chest pain all the way to treatment and follow-up, they follow the same pathway across their provinces, which has really helped not only have better outcomes for patients, but also helped contain costs. Similar optimization programs are happening across the globe including one currently underway in Europe. There's an initiative called the H2O Observatory, which is bringing together patient-reported data across cancer, diabetes, and inflammatory bowel disease, and then using this to standardize data governance and create pathways where these insights are going back into the hands of caregivers and medical professionals to help standardize care decisions. As Kelly explains, standardized pathways not only lead to better outcomes for the individuals receiving care, they can also lead to more successful treatment in the entire patient population. Though the pandemic exposed many of the weaknesses in healthcare, it also led to an incredible amount of innovation in a rather short span of time. One major transformation to the healthcare system in the last 36 months has been the near universal implementation of virtual care in one form or another. Countries globally, again, we're talking from lower income settings all the way up to higher income settings, really embraced a surge in telemedicine and virtual visits. And even though there has been a utilization drop, from at the at's absolute peak in the midpoints of 2020, I think it's been really interesting and really encouraging to see that countries from low resource to low connectivity all the way up to high resource with great internet connections, it's been fascinating to see how virtual care has really, I think, further solidified its spot. Not only does telehealth and virtual care greatly benefit individuals in underserved communities, they also aid healthcare practitioners, physicians, and nurses by giving more options and opportunities to deliver care. Being able to give someone the ability to speak with or even text with someone about symptoms, about concerns, that can then help triage their situation and refer them to the direct point of care. Some of the innovations we saw are really looking to the digital space where we saw a lot of the countries rethink about how they can use digital tools to treat, to deliver supplies, to even thinking more broadly about how they can utilize new technologies to help make care decisions from 
prescribing the best medications to connecting an individual with the best specialist or provider. Kelly tells us about one such program that was created in response to the pandemic. Indonesia has a really fantastic platform where vulnerable individuals are able to place delivery for prescriptions using an app and then they're delivered to their doorstep so they don't need to put themselves in a position where they're out in public to get their medication and potentially exposing themselves to COVID or other viruses. In locations where extreme healthcare challenges are present, virtual care can make a huge impact. In Rwanda, for example, there is a physician shortage so severe that one doctor may serve as many as 60,000 patients. For those patients, the recent implementation of remote care could very well have meant a difference of life and death. The government was able to work with different private sector partners to really build robust infrastructure to give individuals access to digital health consultations, which has led to more than 30% of the adult population signing up. In addition to the digital health consultations, it also has provided AI-powered triage, as well as a symptom checker platform. So individuals that may be concerned about a headache can work it out on these uh, tools and apps before necessarily having to seek care inside um, the healthcare system. Perhaps the most promising approach to healthcare as it currently stands is the vision of an integrated system. It's viewed as the way forward and a solution to many of the healthcare issues facing developing countries. Isabel Mestres is the CEO of City Cancer Challenge Foundation that works to bring improved access to equitable cancer care to cities around the world. For her, connection and collaboration amongst providers is, as she puts it, a no-brainer, especially when it comes to cancer care. The answer is very clear. No single actor can tackle this challenge. And actually I think it's very naive to think differently because everybody brings uh, different value propositions to the table. We should not be all focusing on the same. I mean, there's some companies that should be focusing on innovation. Others should be focusing on delivering the best care possible to the patients. Others should be focusing on ensuring that the access piece, others on the financing piece. No one can be expert of everything. And I think we all bring different assets to the table and it's much more cost-effective and impactful if everybody focus on what they're best and we bring a collaborative approach to the table. For Kelly, it's the seamlessness and improved coordination that are crucial. When we talk about integrated care system, it's one that really provides coordinated and seamless care, meaning that the system is working together and that the different stops along the way, may it be meeting with a community health worker, to a nurse, to a doctor, to a specialist, to even surgery, that along that pathway, it's connected, it's coordinated, and there's limited things falling in the gaps. Essentially, the system would operate as a continuous loop, as opposed to the ad hoc way that much of today's healthcare is structured. Here, Kelly offers an example of how an integrated system could work. You could go to a cardiologist for a checkup and they would be able to look back and maybe you saw a specialist for allergies or maybe you had a referral to go get your eyes checked and they could look at the retina scans. So they would have the full picture of you and what your health conditions are. 
regardless of, of the specialist you're going to see. In terms of thinking about this for lower resource settings, this kind of care is really important to consider and really, really important to implement where possible, especially when thinking about the first and foremost and most important is that it provides better outcomes for individuals. Of course, healthcare advances don't just stop at virtual care and integrated systems. One of the more exciting health-related breakthroughs in recent memory has been the introduction of artificial intelligence into healthcare. When we think about AI coming into the healthcare system, we're really looking at it across our work in Healthcare at the Forum as an extra layer of support for physicians, as well as an extra layer of support for individuals. So from the physician side, it has really provided an interesting and really excellent tool to help them with um, clinical decision-making. Anywhere from diagnostics, from imaging, to x-rays, to ultrasounds, AI can really be a partner in helping to diagnose and catch things, especially if it's very early. In many countries around the world, trained staff is a highly limited resource. AI could help free some of those resources for example, by taking over routine tasks or providing insight. The CT scans for lung cancer, that AI can help pick out things that may not be necessarily even visible to a very well-trained eye. And we see even more ways how technology plays a part in reducing the workload for individual physicians or bring expertise in traditionally underserved regions. With remote technology, practitioners would also be able to assist in the care of patients located an ocean away. You can have a chest CT in Sub-Saharan Africa, and now with technology, that chest CT can be reviewed by someone who's sitting in North America. For many experts, including Kelly, in order to move toward a more equitable healthcare future, patient representation is an incredibly important element. There's lots of statistics out there, lots of studies that show that care outcomes are better. It can be better when you are working with a physician that is your gender, that's your race, that speaks your language. So I think the more that we can think about how do you build a healthcare workforce that meets the needs of the population that, they, that they're serving. Of course, the healthcare system is a complex series of moving parts, and improving it can be just as complicated. But it is absolutely necessary, given what everyone within the healthcare systems lived through in the last three years, and what experts predict for the future. I think one thing that everyone is quite confident of and quite certain of is that there are going to be future crises, especially when you're thinking about pandemics. We're seeing a lot more impact on human health with climate change. So mass migration, increase in infectious disease, that we're definitely going to need to be rapidly building towards healthcare systems that respond to that. And I think a lot of that looks like rethinking primary care and chronic disease management. Health is not a cost, it's an investment. And it's so true, but still becomes the buzzword that we keep saying, but it seems that nobody is taking it as, a, as valid despite the evidence. That's Isabel Mestres, CEO of City Cancer Challenge Foundation, or CCAN, joining us again to talk about the very real difference that local community investment in healthcare can make. 
Her organization tackles cancer, one of the most prevalent of the non-communicable diseases that Kelly mentioned earlier. Though global initiatives and guidelines are helpful when it comes to healthcare, solutions must be customized on a municipal level as factors that affect implementation are variable across regions and it's often difficult to implement strategy on a national level. Here's Isabel explaining how CCAN works locally to improve access to cancer care. We are engaged with the city for a period of 10 years with an intense phase of three years at the beginning and then gradually is going more towards the sustainability phase and ensuring that we get the right data to monitor all the interventions. The first step in becoming a CCAN city is the application process which involves rigorous vetting. After that, a committee is created to lead the decision-making process and steer the city's vision. Currently, 13 cities are taking part in the program, including Lyon, Mexico, Nairobi, Kenya, and Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And then we go through the phase of a needs assessment. It's really important that we have the evidence, the data to back up where are the gaps in that system. So we collect currently around 1,100 data points from a systemic perspective across all the clinical oncology services, so pathology, surgery, imaging, radiotherapy, palliative care, etc. But also the management of those services, understanding the human resources, the financing, the budgets, also the quality of those services, as we were talking before, the, if there's the guidelines, the protocols, the standard, the programs. That also involves the engagement of the patient voice because sometimes the perspective from the institution might not be the same of the perspective from the patient. So after that, that brings the evidence and we present a situation analysis report to the city with what are the gaps. And then we work collectively with them on understanding what should be those solutions. When all this is taken into consideration, CCAN creates what they call a roadmap for the city laying out a series of projects that they feel can provide an accelerated impact on the health of its citizens. For Isabel, the difference created by tackling cancer care locally versus on the national level is clear. When we started, nobody believed that the cities had a role to play. You know, everybody was pushing, no, no, cancer has to be led by the national governments. Well, Actually, if you talk with the national government, yeah, we all need to push to make sure that cancer is a priority, but we are competing there with many priorities. Our role is to work with the real agents of change, the ones that are actually driving change every day. And there's no competing priority there. Cancer is their priority. In fact, in Cali, Colombia, CCAN has shown exactly what change on the local level can do. Here's Isabel again about the power of collaboration and how it inspired one man to introduce HPV vaccines that can prevent cervical cancer. I would like to put in the spotlight a Secretary of Health of Cali, Colombia. What he did was incredible because they were the first city we've never tested second and he believed on the model. In Colombia, those back on those days, there was no HPV vaccine and the rates of vaccine in the country were below 3%. Well, he said, well, with Sikkim here and the international community looking into Cali, let's reintroduce HPV vaccine. And he came to us and we we're like, well, we don't do prevention. He's like, doesn't matter. I mean, this is the perfect time. Let's go and talk to the, to the government, to the Ministry of Health, and then let's talk to the companies and let's reintroduce the HPV vaccine. And he was so in the mood for driving change and so inspired by us being there 
that then he, you know, we make the right connections for him. We make the case to the government. The government was like looking at him saying, okay, go try it, you know, all yours, because they had failed. And he reintroduced the, the vaccine. And incredibly, in one, or one year, it, was, it went up to 70% coverage. Of course, all of this requires an incredible amount of cooperation at both the local and national levels. That's why one major key to CCAN's success is the involvement of local stakeholders joining together to create an optimized network of patient care and resources. There's much more beyond the government and the health service providers that have an impact on cancer care. You have to also involve civil society organizations, patient groups, the university is critical in this space, but also other sectors, specifically when we're talking about cities, you also need to talk about infrastructure, transportation, how those patients are going to reach those services. Also, you have to engage with the Ministry of Education when we're talking about improving the educational piece for that workforce. Also, you need to be engaged with the IT and digital under the government, but also companies that are locally, that are driving solutions. Isabel credits CCAN's rigorous research and data analysis for the program's proven ability to strengthen healthcare access. According to her, it all starts with putting various strategies to the test. By doing, by testing, by failing, we're trying to come up with what are those interventions that actually are gonna move the dial in cancer and make sure that we put that into future decision makers so that they can have a set of, of interventions that could work. For us, us, there is no that evidence. We are not stopping, we're still working and we're still driving some solutions forward and we're documenting and monitoring the impact. Once a solution is proven, it can be put into place in other locations. As of now, we're developing how-to guides for other cities that want to use this intervention. So, for example, we are developing and implementing resource-appropriate guidelines for clinical management of prioritized cancers developed by the local stakeholders. And actually what we're seeing is that not only they're being endorsed by the local institutions, but in many of the cases are actually endorsed by national governments. And the impact is translated from that city to the whole country. One of the ways CCAN has made such a strong impact is by playing to their strengths and prioritizing early diagnostics over prevention. Here's Isabel to explain why they focus on diagnostics. We specifically decided not to get into the prevention space because that's an area that is critical, but other organizations are best placed to drive that space and there was much more advances in that space where we're more focusing in ensuring that when a patient has symptoms, that that patient has then everything available to get the best diagnostic and the best treatment in the right time. And that's where we're focusing on. We're trying to avoid having people diagnosed with no solutions for them. So I think screening plays a critical role, specifically when there is those patients in primary healthcare that the professionals, there are some potential signs and symptoms, and then they have to go through screening to confirm those, those suspicious. In this way, the organization is able to put greater focus on creating new pathways to treatment for patients. In fact, CCAN is currently doing promising work regarding breast cancer treatment research at one of their sites in South America, 
starting with the logistics of reaching and connecting with patients in a meaningful way. What we're testing in Asuncion in Paraguay is actually we got a donation from Direct Relief on breast cancer drugs. And we're going to what we, I see the last mile, like really, really tipping in, okay, for those specific concrete medicines, what is required in terms of diagnostics, what is required in terms of the pathway, and how we need to improve data to make sure that we can identify and monitor the patient throughout the treatment. So we've been focusing on that journey for that group of medicines, but now we aim to expand that last mile in the area of imaging. It's an incredible because it goes to a granularity of data that hopefully we can publish also what is required to ensure that the medicine gets to the right patient at the right time. Because sometimes, you know, the medicine goes there, but even if it's available, it doesn't mean that it arrives to, to the patient or if it comes at the right time. With their track record of improving cancer care, CCAN receives many applications. Though she's proud of the foundation's growth, Isabel stresses that the organization is focused on using their funding in the best way possible. Part of the strategy of, of the, the board of CCAN is to have a, a solid group of 20 cities and try to go deep enough in these cities that we can, as I say, take the granularity of understanding what are those best interventions to drive change. It gives me hope to see how organizations like City Cancer Challenge Foundation and the World Economic Forum fight to improve access to care on a global level. Their work is incredibly valuable and necessary. According to the World Health Organization, comprehensive cancer treatment is available in less than 15% of low-income countries, compared to 90% of high-income countries. I strongly believe that we have a momentum of change right now, and new tools to improve conditions and outcomes for patients everywhere. Here's Kelly one last time. In what has been a really challenging time through the pandemic for health systems globally, there's also been a lot of bright spots, a lot of innovation, a lot of partnerships, and I think too, a lot of willingness to share across countries on what worked and what didn't, as well as an appetite to rethink how care is delivered and that many countries recognize that they're in the same boat. That again, that everyone's walking out of the pandemic with a challenge on their hands, which is how do we fix our health systems? Perhaps now more than ever, we have the advantage of perspective on our side when it comes to assessing a wayward healthcare system on the mend. I think through the spirit of collaboration, through the spirit of partnerships, as well as thinking five, 10 years towards the future and respond, we are on a pathway to better care. You've been listening to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Health and Ears. We pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere. Subscribe to us and always get the latest episode in your podcast feed or visit siemens-healthandears.com slash podcast for more. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Health and Ears. This podcast describes possible future ideas and concepts. It is not intended to describe specific performance and or safety characteristics of currently planned or future products. Future realization and availability cannot be guaranteed. The statements by Siemens Health and Ears customers in this podcast are based on results that were achieved in the customer's unique setting. 
Because there's no typical hospital or laboratory and many variables exist, e.g. hospital size, samples mix, case mix, level of IT and or automation adoption, there can be no guarantee that other customers will achieve the same results. 